Oh, hello people in podcast land. Welcome back. My guest today is Narina Hertz, author and economist, and we're talking about the loneliness epidemic. Even before social distancing was a word, loneliness was a huge crisis. More people than ever before feel detached in a world that's never been so connected. It seems so converse, right? We have ubiquitous global instant communications access to everybody, and yet there is a huge surge in self-reported loneliness. So today, expect to learn the dramatic health impacts of loneliness, the extreme lengths that some people are going to just in an effort to feel connected with other humans, why 16 to 24-year-olds are at higher risk, and much more. In other, oh, Before I get to other news, if you haven't already, go and subscribe to the Modern Wisdom YouTube channel. We are so close to 100,000 subscribers. I can, I can taste it. I can smell that 100K party. So just now, while you're on your phone, navigate to YouTube, Modern Wisdom, and press the subscribe button. It would make me very, very happy indeed. In other news, this episode of the podcast is brought to you by Manscaped. It is 2021. This is the year for you to no longer use your old beard trimmer to make the most sensitive part of your body stand a little bit taller. Manscaped has developed their Lawnmower 3.0 to be the best in men's below-the-waist grooming. It's just launched in the UK and is already available in the US, so you are all finally able to trim your body with all the sensitivity and precision that it deserves. Manscaped has designed the Lawnmower 3.0 to be the greatest ball and body hair trimmer ever created, featuring a cutting-edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents, a 90-minute battery so you can take a longer shave, waterproof technology which allows you to groom in the shower, and an LED light which illuminates grooming areas for a closer and more precise trim. It's also got a 7,000 RPM motor with quiet stroke technology. Quiet strokes even, even trademarked, so I mean, who knows what they're going to use that for next. Anyway, get 20% off and free shipping with the code MODERNWISDOM at manscaped.com. This works in America, works across Europe, works worldwide. Modern Wisdom for 20% off and free shipping on the best ball trimmer that you can get. Fewer accidents and more accuracy. Go and pick yourself up one today. But for now, it's time for the wise and wonderful Narina Hertz. Narina Hertz, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on. Pleasure to have you here. You're an economist. What are you doing talking about loneliness? Why are you interested in that? So it was a, it was a few things happening pretty much at once that made me think this is what I want to research next. First, it was my students. I was noting that increasing numbers were coming into my office during office hours and confiding in me how lonely and isolated they felt. And this was a new phenomenon. Um, I've been teaching for a few years and I hadn't experienced anything like it before, but it was notable. And the other thing that I really noticed was that when I set my students' group assignments, increasingly or significant numbers of them seemed to be finding it increasingly hard to interact face-to-face. And when I raised it with a colleague, um, an American professor who runs one of America's big universities, he said to me, we're seeing exactly the same thing here. In fact, it's so bad here that we're having to run remedial how to read a face in real life classes 
for our incoming students because they're spending so much time with their heads and their screens that they literally are unable to read a room in person. So that was kind of one just piece of information, which I guess I lodged. And then at the same time, I was really interested in my research in the rise of right-wing populism, the rise of people voting um, for people like Le Pen in France or Salvini in Italy or Trump, of course, in the United States. And so I started looking into this and I started interviewing uh, voters and hearing from these kind of voters. And one thing that came out time and time again from their stories was how lonely they felt, or at least how lonely they had felt until they found community in this far-right populist kind of gathering. And I found that disturbing, but also really interesting and a kind of way of making sense of what was going on that I hadn't come across before. And then the third insight, these are all happening at roughly the same time, was I had bought, and I apologize already in advance if this is annoying for anyone who's listening, I had bought an Alexa, so I'm whispering it in case she starts going off. And um, and I noticed myself becoming increasingly attached to my own Alexa. And, uh, and it got me thinking about... AI and social robots and the role that they were inevitably going to play in coming years in helping us feel more connected to each other and less, or in helping us feel less lonely and um, more connected, maybe not to each other, but to something at least. And I started researching that and started to realize that actually what we'd been seeing, and this is before the pandemic, and this may speak very much to you, Chris, was the rise of what I call the loneliness economy, an entire economy that had sprung up really speaking to people's need for what um, the famous 20th century um, sociologist Emil Durkheim called collective effervescence, the need for people to have shared experiences together in person. And I'm saying this might resonate with you because, of course, with your club promoting um history and really and we'd seen it whether in the rise of people who wanted to go to clubs or the rise in people who wanted to go to things like escape rooms um, or the rise in people who were looking for community and things like soul cycle what we'd been seeing um, in the years preceding the pandemic was really a rise in this appetite for community whether it was in a non-paid-for form or in a paid-for commercialized form. So it was those three different things together that made me realize that loneliness was a way really of making sense, perhaps, a prism through which to understand what was going on in the world, the big societal um, shifts and political shifts that have been going on. How do you define loneliness? So I define loneliness in a broader sense to the sense that some people listening might um, think of it. I define loneliness as not only feeling disconnected from your friends and family and craving um, connection with them, although it is, of course, that too. I also define loneliness as feeling disconnected from your employer, your government, 
from feeling uncared for and supported, not only from those who are meant to be close to you, but from your work, but by your workplace or your government too. So for me, loneliness is political as well as personal, and its drivers are um, economic, technological, um, demographic, not only to do with how we treat ourselves and each other. I imagine one of the challenges that you're going to come up against when researching loneliness is that all of that's very subjective. Now, we don't have, we can try and make an objective metric from a very subjective feeling, but it's like trying to rate happiness or trying to rate any other sort of emotion. We don't know what it's like to be another person's consciousness. Mm -hmm. So their level of loneliness and ours, we can try Mm -hmm. and give it as best a scale as we can rate from one to five if this statement somewhat agree, disagree, etc., but it's always going to be slightly messy, I imagine. And the statistics yeah. around that must be similarly messy as well. What what statistics did you find around loneliness levels? So I think that's firstly such an interesting point that you raised because it's something that I grappled with so much as I was doing my research. And I ended up thinking about loneliness. And you're right, there is, with all emotions, that challenge. You know, I'm very lonely. Is my very lonely the same as you're very lonely? But it's also, I realized, it's like pain as well because if somebody says i'm in a lot of pain physical pain we also don't know whether their physical their very pain is equivalent to your very pain like they're stubbing their toe might be like you having a poker put in your eye we just don't know so there is that challenge with with um these kind of metrics for sure whether it's loneliness depression anxiety or physical pain even but um Assuming that we're in the ballpark, at least, with these kind of figures, um, and I think that's a fair assumption, what the research shows really clearly is that loneliness, even before the pandemic, was a really serious problem, with one in five UK adults saying that they felt lonely always or most of the time, and half of 18 to 24-year-olds saying that they felt lonely regularly. I mean, that's an astounding figure. And in the workplace, that also an incredibly lonely place for many. 60% of UK workers say that they feel lonely at work. Um, one in five American workers say that they don't have a single friend in the workplace. So um, loneliness really a very pervasive uh, feeling throughout our society, which the pandemic has significantly amplified um, and research that's come out in the last few months um, really shows that very clearly, with especially with three groups, especially being um, finding themselves even more lonely through the pandemic the young, people on low income, and women. So these are the three groups who, I mean, everyone on average feels lonelier, but those three groups in particular. Um, feel especially lonely or have been feeling especially lonely. I remember listening to a, I want to say a podcast. I don't tend to dip in much into the sort of um, women on women world of podcasts, but this one was really fascinating. And they were talking about sympathizing with women who are single and doing lockdown alone. Uh, because of the need for the oxytocin release from being close, like physically close to people. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And that was a, an insight that I totally hadn't thought of. Um, you know, a, a bloke, for me, like hugs and stuff, yeah, they're, I can, they're all right. 
but I don't really need them that much. And seeing it from that side, that made a lot of sense. Out of, out of I, th- every- I thought you, were, I thought you were meant to be warmer up north and like be more, be more into kind of hugging and salt stuff. Salt of the salt of the earth up here. You know, <laughs> everyone's terrified of hugging now. It's that weird. It's that weird elbow, <laughs> elbow thing, gone. isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Um, so out of all of the different groups, it's surprising, I think, it might be surprising to some people, it was surprising to me upon reading the book, that the, that 18 to 24 age bracket is suffering because you just presume between the age of 18 and 24 that everyone's just swimming in you know, late night house parties and uh, a morning book club and a ride to the gym with your friends and all this sort of stuff. But it seems like that's... Quite the opposite, especially given that that's the age that people are at university, a higher education. So that will be chunked into fairly, you know, you're forced to see people. Some of the lectures I had at Newcastle were 150 people strong. I wanted less people around me, not more. But it seems like that's changing. So I think, firstly, you can be lonely in a crowd. I mean, so in the same way that you are not necessarily lonely if you're on your own. Um, So... I think that's one factor, but you're right. I think that was really surprising to me as well, how lonely the young are. In fact, the young are the loneliest generation. And when we think about loneliness, we often think about it being the elderly who are the loneliness, but that just isn't the case. It is the young. The data is really clear on this, who are the loneliest. I think, you know, what differentiates the young in particular is their usage of mobile phones and social media. And I really began my research feeling really agnostic on this point and I had no agenda beforehand but as I dug into the academic research and as I interviewed many teenagers what came out again and again was the really um, destructive role that social media in particular was playing in their lives. Now of course again this is on average and so there are going to be people for whom social media has been a lifeline the lgbtq kid in a small village somewhere who you know wasn't physically around anyone who was like them um it may well have found their community on instagram say but um but on average it seems that these um platforms are really playing a significant role in the rise of young people's loneliness and it's for a few reasons in the first is quite simply that these are platforms designed to be addictive, to keep drawing us in with their kind of twinkly lights and color and flashing and endless scrolls and um, and all the ways that they've kind of designed them to do so. And the more we're on the phones, I mean, the less present we are with those actually around us. And so the quality of our face-to-face relationships are diminished and I've been guilty of it myself I've been scrolling on my social media feed in the room with my husband and um, not really even hearing him because my attention's been on my phone but that social media playing the role of um, kind of being a weapon not only of mass destruction but also a weapon of sorry not a weapon of mass destruction um that was a bit far, I think. But social media, you know, not only playing a part of being a weapon of mass distraction, I'd rather, um, I, 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 you know, let me not go too far here, but um, but also um, being 
a very excluding mechanism for many young people, it turns out. Um, in my interviews with teenagers, I remember Peter, for example, a 14-year-old schoolboy, telling me very poignantly about how invisible he felt when he would post on Instagram and then be waiting, 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 waiting for someone to like his post. And then when nobody did, asking himself, what am I doing wrong? Or Claudia, a teenager who told me about the pain she felt when she realized that her friends were out without her. They said that they weren't going out and she was scrolling through her feed and saw them hanging out without her and she had been excluded. Or a parent who shared with me the pain his daughter felt when she was in a cafe with her friends and everyone's phone pinged with a WhatsApp message inviting them to a party and she didn't even get the message but she had to pretend that she had the message so as to not appear so excluded so um of course young people were excluded in the past too this isn't a contemporary phenomenon and yet what makes it different now is that because so much of their social interaction has migrated onto their screens um whereas an adult in their lives in the past might have seen this is going on and actually done something to intervene. So a teacher might have seen a child not being asked to sit with others, or a parent might have noticed that their kid wasn't being asked to do something. Um, today, the adult typically isn't aware of it, whereas to all their peers, the exclusion is really yeah, all so too visible. There's a lack of visibility and there's some learned helplessness, lack of visibility from a caregiver's perspective looking in and then the learned helplessness. Yeah, I mean, it's easy to say... Uh, just man up, you know, that people have been excluded for all of time. But there does seem to be a corner that's turned with social media. The fact that the ubiquity of it, the messiness of it, Jonathan hates uh, the coddling of the American mind, which I'm halfway through at the moment, is really fascinating and terrifying around this. There is a like a great wall from teenagers around about 2012 to 2014, which is kind of when Instagram came around. And it's just this, the crest of this tsunami that's kind of moving through the demographic. And it's very much split into pre and post yes. that time. And, uh, and, when we, and when we look at rising uh, loneliness figures amongst this generation, they also like massively shoot up from, um, from then onwards. But what's really interesting is that, so... We've been aware of that research for a few years now, but what we couldn't determine um, definitively was whether this was just um, correlation or was it actually causation? Was it because people were on their social media platforms that they were um, lonelier? So it was hard to disentangle that when all you knew was that there was a kind of, the, that the periods corresponded. But about Two years ago, there was a really seminal new piece of research done at Stanford University, obviously a top university, where they got 3,000 students, um, where they put half of those into a control group. They were told to keep using their Facebook as usual. The other group were told to delete their Facebook for two months. And then they tracked how the different groups responded. And the group that were off Facebook fascinatingly it wasn't that they then just spent more time on other platforms they actually spent less time on the internet overall and more time in person with friends and family but they were also significantly less lonely and significantly happier in fact the researchers said that deleting facebook is 40 percent as good for you 
as actually having therapy. <laughs> yeah. Shit the bed. Yeah. That's a really astounding I mean, I've been very sort of anti-social media, anti-technology for three and a bit years since I got introduced to Tristan Harris from the Center for Humane Technology. Yes. Um, and I've kind of been on this flex for a long time, but it does feel very much like, I, I don't know what the solution is here. I think um, it needs to be emergent, bottom up. It needs a social change. It requires people to be able to self-regulate, despite the fact that there is billions and billions of dollars and an army of engineers behind every click. But it also requires perhaps some sort of top-down litigation. I know that we're seeing screen time yeah, finally not, got brought I mean, in. Yeah, not not perhaps. I think that ne absolutely needs to be part of the package. And in many ways, I think we should think of social media companies as the tobacco companies of the 21st century. And as such, they really should be regulated as such um, strongly, especially when it comes to children. And in the UK, there is actually just in the last um, few days, there's been some real action on this front with a new bill going through Parliament um, which will hold social media companies accountable for online harm, not only for the most um, egregious hate speech, but also for when it comes to children um, negative, negatively affecting them psychologically. So that is actually a significant step um, in what I believe is the right direction. Because although, of course, we can try and resist our addiction ourselves, I know how hard it is to do so. I mean, I when I, I typically am not on social media, but when I have a book out, I have to go on social media. And I've really seen the how addicted, how quickly I've become once I've been, you know, going on it on a daily basis. Yeah, the problem is once those neurons have wired themselves in, they're not going anywhere. They're there for the rest of your life. Um I I know what you mean well, about Yeah. I mean although Although even with the addiction, I um, one way that I managed to kind of break it is by being quite draconian and actually just having like not keep putting my phone so that it's not actually an arm's reach. Like I have to physically distance myself. Sleep with from your it. phone outside of your bedroom is the number one hack for reducing your screen time. Um, but yeah, I, I, I saw the legislation that you're talking about. I am yeah. concerned that that involves a restriction of freedom of speech and we get into a whole other conversation to be had there. It is going to be difficult to legislate top down and restrict the bad that is ubiquitously bad platform wide around social media whilst getting into a more nuanced discussion, I think, about what we should and should not be. Are they a publisher? Are they a pipeline? Are they the provider of information? Are they liable for what's on their platform? What does that mean? What do we... So on and so forth. Um, one question that I had that I thought was kind of interesting, what was the last time in your research that you looked at that we didn't have mass loneliness? Are we going back to like the 1800s here or...? So it's only in the 1800s that you even re start reading about loneliness as a phenomenon. So um, so the phrase itself, um, the word lonely, is something that really only entered the vernacular from the 1800s onwards. But I, and I think, um, you know, it's partly because of how people conceived of themselves um, in a religious context, you know, being kind of, you weren't lonely if you were, at one with God. And um, so I think that's maybe part of the reason why we didn't see that 
uh, that sentiment expressed before. But that isn't to say that people weren't lonely before uh, because I'm sure there were many people who felt lonely if you were um, living in an abusive relationship, whether that was in the um, 16th or 15th or 14th century. That well, imagine, probably imagine if you were really a, 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 a LGBT, if you were, if you were a racial minority. Yes. In a, if a, you an were area. economically, if you were you know, a peasant, if you were in a poor house, if you were, you know, I'm sure there were lots of circumstances that felt lonely, even if it wasn't something that was talked about then. So what's changed? Obviously, we've got this uh, contribution of technology. Mm. What else has changed that's driving this loneliness? Yeah, a number of factors. Uh, For example, more people live on their own now than at any time before. It's not, as I said, that everyone who lives on their own is lonely. That, of course, isn't the case. But if you live on your own, you are disproportionately likely to be lonely and disproportionately likely to feel lonely more often. Um, We do less with other people than we did in the past. We go to church less. We are less likely to be members of trade unions. We are um, less likely to do things like go to parent-teacher evenings if we're a parent. So we just do less with others than we did in the past. And then there's what I would call the neoliberal mindset, which is really the particular capitalist mindset that has dominated the last few decades ever really since the 1980s when it was promulgated by Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan. And this is really a mindset that firmly put the individual at the centre, a kind of me-I-centric philosophy that um, really valorised self-interest and selfishness. And we even see this in the way that pop song lyrics evolved from the 1980s onwards, where we see words like we, us, and our being steadily supplanted by words like me, myself, I, which is fascinating. And an I-centric, me-centric world was inevitably always going to be a lonelier one. Yeah, that's interesting. I think it's important. I'm a massive champion of a meritocracy. I'm also a huge champion of upward mobility, personal sovereignty, taking agency and control of your own actions. But I can see how that taken to its extreme can lead to a loneliness. Kind of talking about, it's the same theme throughout all of this, that we want the good bits of what we can get out that's good, but as soon as we start to push it to an extreme with technology, with independence and sort of sovereignty Mm. of the individual when you take it to the extreme you also then get malignant effects that come as a byproduct of that too and finding the messy middle finding what's good of that without taking too much of it i think is a a real challenge and also recognizing that there are trade-offs we sometimes have to make between individualism and community between freedom and fraternity these aren't binary choices we have to make, but it's recognizing that we have to give probably a bit of one to get more of the other. What about city design? Yes, that's something I look at a lot in my book, and there's a whole chapter on that. Cities are, and again, some people are surprised by this finding, but cities, it turns out, are 
the loneliest habitats in which to live. You might think with all these people around you, you wouldn't be lonely. Well, it turns out that isn't the case. It's partly about the speed of the city. You know, everyone rushing, go, go, go. In fact, research, I found this fascinating that the richer a city, the faster its citizens walk. And also the denser a city, the less civil its citizens are to each other, which I find fascinating as well. So cities, these rushing places where people are not really civil to each other or that civil to each other, um, you know, are inevitably going to be lonelier places. But cities also designed, in most cases, more really for cars all too often than people. The scale of a city can be alienating and isolating with increasingly what I call hostile architecture dotted around the city. So um, benches, uh, lights, uh, spikes, grills designed with the express purpose of excluding certain groups. For example, there's um, a shopping mall which um, has a very special kind of pinky light in the um, bathrooms to dissuade teenagers from hanging out there because it shows up acne. Um, there's also this kind of high-pitched sonic sound that some other shopping malls are using, which apparently only young people can hear. It's something about there's something that happens in your ears as you get older when you, and you don't hear these frequencies as well. Um, and also to dissuade people from young people from hanging out there. We see it with benches even. Um, there's a bench near to where I live, the Camden Bench, it's called, designed specifically this kind of sloping bench um, to really dissuade skateboarders to skate on it, homeless people to lie on it, but of course then being a bench which no one really can sit on, including the elderly woman who might have wanted to sit there, watch the world go by and chat to passers-by. So cities, yeah, in many ways being designed intentionally to exclude, thereby um, making them lonely for significant swathes of people in them. I went to Rome last year and I went to go see the Colosseum and as a part of that, the tour guide showed us that, I'm going to get this wrong, it's something like 100,000 people, I think, that the Colosseum at its absolute max could have in and they could exit all 100,000 people in under 10 minutes. And one of the strategies that they implemented was that the steps, as you were going down, they were sloped towards the exit, so you couldn't slow down. As soon as you begin moving <sighs> down the steps, your feet have to go faster to catch up. And I'm like, well, I, in a world that doesn't have suing and sort of litigative lawsuits around, I fell down your steps getting out of the gladiatorial arena. Like when that, that isn't an option, I think it probably makes for a... Probably makes for a good idea to get people out of a stadium quickly, but not safely, and also probably a bit of a shit bench. Uh, what about <laughs> what? What are some of the most extreme examples of loneliness that you found? Uh, my, it's, it's probably Carl. So I had heard that people um, paid to be cuddled. That that there was that a growing industry, a growing part of what I've called the loneliness economy was people paying to be cuddled. And, and I started investigating this online initially and 
came across a woman called Jean. Jean is a professional cuddler. Um, she is in Venice Beach in California. And she introduced me to some of her clients. And when I was in Los Angeles, I met with one of them. Let's call him Carl. And he came in. I met him in a Starbucks. Um, I think it was Johnny Cash playing on the um, radio. And he um, walked in, nice-looking man, early 50s, salt and pepper hair, chinos, button-down shirt, sat down and told me his story. And it turned out he had moved to Los Angeles a few years before from a small town and didn't know anyone in the city. And he was divorced and he didn't know anyone in the city and felt really lonely and really craved intimacy. He had tried online dating, um, but it really wasn't for him, he said. And he then heard about paid cuddling and he started seeing Jean and he said it absolutely transformed his life. Now, this, by the way, he's a media executive earning a six-figure salary. Single, I'm going to guess single working for a big media corporation yeah he started seeing gene he said it transformed his life um he went from being really down really depressed to feeling really positive his productivity at work he told me shut up you know a fascinating story and so he told me he was seeing gene once a week and i said gosh that's a lot and then he said you're not using my real name are you and i said no and he said well if i'm let me then tell you something else. And I said, what? And he said, well, seeing Jean hasn't ended up being enough. And so I'm actually seeing other people to pay to be cuddled. And by the way, we this was making very clear this was not a sexual thing. This was about intimacy, about wanting to be held, touched, not in a sexual way. And um, And I said, gosh, that must be really expensive. How are you paying for it? And he said, I'm living in my car. This was somebody who was so craving connection and intimacy that in order to pay for it, he was living in his car, showering at the 24-7 gym. He was parking outside, leaving his food in the fridge in work. I mean, I found that such a disturbing story, such a sad story. Um, Yeah, so I think that was probably one of the most extreme ones I came across. On the other end of the age spectrum, um, another story that I did find really moving was what's going on in Japan with elderly pensioners who are the fastest growing demographic when it comes to people being incarcerated, people going to jail. And the reason for it, researchers who've studied this phenomenon, is because they're so lonely, this group of pensioners who are intent who are committing crimes like shoplifting in order to be jailed, that they want to be jailed in order to find the company and companionship that jail provides. You know, a forty percent of these jailed pensioners um, have no relationship with their families, fifty percent haven't seen any friends in recent months even. So again, a really sad story. But these are at the these are at the extremes. It's important to again remember how pervasive loneliness is amongst all of us. How do you get jailed? It's a Japanese granny. Shoplifting. Yeah, of course. But just really badly done. 
<laughs> like really obvious chocolate, like walking out with a huge teddy bear or like a TV under your arm or something. If you're elderly, you might not be able to carry the TV. Something like, so. yeah, teddy bears. Teddy so maybe, bears are good maybe option. the teddy bear. Maybe the teddy bear. Marshmallows. Uh, other light objects yeah i uh, i I don't really know what to think about that i mean the the, your man from la obviously that's that's a a very bizarre example i wonder how much of that is a pathology on his part and how much of that is a byproduct of loneliness um well what was what was interesting was i actually went to gene's cuddle sanctuary as well when i was in um is is it like a sort of a no, I don't use the word brothel because I know that we're steering clear of sexy stuff here, but it kind of like a sort of a madam's house, but it's all different. Would you like to cuddle in the pink room today or in the cloud or in the unicorn lounge? So I've got to say, before I went there, I was really nervous and I was thinking, what am I letting myself in for? But actually, it was much more akin to a yoga studio. Oh, with okay. with with the people incense coming in, incense and the music. The, yeah, yeah, it didn't have incense, but it kind of had, you know, beanbag type things on the floor and like, you know, those tubes that pe- that in gyms you can kind of use to lie on and, and do your exercises. So it's a bit like that, dotted around and mats on the floor, kind of like those mats that you see in yoga studios. And the people attending, so it was a group cuddle session. The people so you attending, get paired up with random, random other humans for a cuddle. So what happens is you pay to attend, and then you sit around um, in a circle, and you all meet each other. What was really interesting was everyone looked so normal. I mean, these, you know, I didn't know what to expect, but everyone just these really looked. They looked like people who were going to their local gym class or yoga class you know wearing kind of comfortable no clothes physical suits. deficiencies or people's no sort of, yeah, not yeah, at yeah. all and then um what happened then was you kind of moved around with di- to different people and were cuddled and cuddled them oh so it's and like a car keys in the bowl type job but for for that and then you swap and you change and you keep on going oh, i had a cuddle with Jeannie, yeah, but you you know? your, yeah but you keep your clothes on and and it's all very consensual. So you say, uh, would it be okay if I put my arm around you? And then the person has to say yes or no. But what was really, I mean, it wasn't really for me. I don't think it played. Did you not have a go? To my, no, I did have a go. Did you have a, did you have a go with Jeannie? I had a go. Yes, I had a go. Yeah. I mean, I, I went, I like experienced it. And the experience was, I'd say not really for me. I think my British reserve <laughs> didn't didn't play well to the group cuddling. But I I went for it. I you know I went for it. See what it felt like. But what was really interesting afterwards, because this is speaking to whether Carl had some weird pathology. I don't think he did because you know this group of people who I chatted to afterwards, they were so normal and their reasons for it were just quite straightforward one of them um a woman from texas again attractive woman from texas she'd moved to um california she was divorced she said you know she didn't want to be in a relationship right now but she craved having some intimacy and some touch another woman a university administrator in her 20s she told me again that she it was intimacy she was missing connection a feeling of connection in an increasingly disconnected world. So um, it was actually 
interesting how not strange the people were yeah who were doing it what happens physiologically when someone's lonely so when we're lonely we think of loneliness really as being something that only affects our mental health but actually loneliness does you're right affect us physiologically too it's really because of how we've evolved because we are essentially creatures of togetherness hardwired to connect our bodies have been designed so that when we're not connected to others when we feel lonely um it sends alarm bells ringing kind of putting us into a really strong state of fight or flight. So our blood pressure goes up, our heart rate goes up, our levels of cortisol, which we can measure in our saliva, go up when we're lonely. All of us, all of these things just essentially telling our body, stop being lonely, go and find someone to hang out with and be with. Um, And the trouble is that even though In many ways, this is a great uh, piece of evolutionary design. In the modern world, when so many people are lonely for protracted periods of time, this actually makes you really quite unwell. Um, It's like if you were driving a car in first gear um, for the first initial moments, that's great. That's what you want to be doing. But if you're doing it over time, that's really going to damage your engine. And so too, when you're lonely for protracted periods of time, are our bodies physically damaged? Um, in fact, researchers have found that loneliness is as bad for our health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. I'd seen that stat. How, yeah. how does that tie in? Because obviously I'm not going to get emphysema you know, I'm not, yes. I'm not going to be impacting my lungs. Do you know, yes. can you dig into that a little Inter- bit more? Yes. So um, so we know, for example, that if you're lonely, you have a 30% higher chance of um, getting heart disease. If you're lonely, you have a 40% higher chance of getting dementia. Um, if you're lonely, you also have a higher risk of getting stroke. If you're lonely and you're already ill, you're less likely to recover as well so it's all those sorts of factors why why is is that manifesting do you know did they look at why that's that's coming up like you've got some pretty strong physiological adaptations maladaptations yes well it's really because of this continuous state of being on red alert fight or flight high blood pressure high stress levels um are really bad for us when they're sustained because what they do is they dampen our ability to fight infection and they increase our inflammation levels in our body. And both of those, our ability to fight infection and raised inflammation levels um, are really bad for our life expectancy and for our health. So that's that's why, essentially. I wonder how much... What we're talking about here are diseases which will tend to manifest in older age but we're talking about a group of specifically young people across the spectrum but some very young people i wonder how much harm can be done and then undone you know like the person who used to party really hard when they're young and they've now decided to go teetotal i wonder Mm -hmm. what sort of chronic changes we're going to see from young people who are maybe um 
who'd suffer with loneliness, then perhaps they get into a happy marriage and they have kids and they have lots of dogs and cats and live in the country away from a big city and stuff like that. I wonder, it'll be fascinating to look at that in, you know, sort of 50 years time and see what's actually going on. So the bad news is that researchers have looked at this and oh. what they've found is that even relatively short periods of loneliness, so under two years of feeling lonely, um, can have a significant impact on your life expectancy. Shit. <laughs> Shit the bad. But the, the good news is, okay, the good news, on the other hand, let me counter that then, is that um, actively helping others, feeling connected to others, feeling part of a community is good for our health and actually is shown to improve our life expectancy. So even if you've had a period of loneliness, if you then invest, like actually invest in strengthening your relationships, in being part of a community and also in caring for others because people who give no one else any help, it turns out, also have their life expectancy slashed, whereas helping others makes you live longer. Um, so there are things you can do um, to repair that damage from your past Sitting, sitting is the new smoking was a term that I coined when I bought this beautiful standing desk last year, but it's now loneliness is also the new, so sitting or loneliness are both the new smoking and you're not allowed to, and smoking's also, <laughs> smoking's the old smoking, but it's still going. So you need to watch out for that. There is a, a number of ways that you can reduce your life expectancy. So moving through this, it, it seems like a common antidote here, just off the top of my head, is find a partner that loves you. Find a partner that loves you, build a family. Surely that's one of the most robust solutions to not being lonely. I'm sure that there's many parents that are listening that wish that they could feel lonely, having to take Cindy to school in the morning and Joseph to football on a night time and stuff like that. Well, again, just being in a relationship doesn't necessarily alleviate loneliness and it can actually make you lonelier. One of the reasons women um, is one of the groups which have become lonelier through this pandemic is because of the rise of domestic abuse that we've seen during the pandemic too. Um, and I'm loath to make marriage the solution for the contemporary loneliness crisis. I think what your question does speak to correctly, however, is the importance of having strong relationships in our lives and investing in our relationships and our support structures, which don't have to be those um, traditional ones of a marriage or a partner investing in our friendships also can alleviate loneliness very successfully too can a friendship replace the level of contact that you get from a relationship though we're talking about someone that you get to spend some time with but unless you decide to actually live in a house together perhaps with this friend for a really expanded period of time that compared with the number of the sheer number of hours, the time and attention that you're going to get in a marriage, surely the I, I'm aware that uh, it's time quality, to, it's time together quality. doesn't necessarily yeah. equal the the level of connection. But the presumption is, or at least I would hope, that most people who stay in a marriage for a long time, hopefully it's not abusive. Hopefully it has got a level of connection. You're having kids. You're trying to support them, raise them, create a family that is meaningful and and has purpose and it moves towards a common goal of building a better life for everybody that's within that household. I wonder how many friends equal a good partner, if that makes sense. I think a good 
marriage is a wonderful thing for sure, but I'm not sure how many people are in a good marriage. And so that Divorce being the rates case, probably suggest. Yeah, exactly. And so that being the case, I would say that investing in good friendships um, is really important. To yeah, do they're, 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 I suppose good friendships are quite robust, aren't they? You tend to yeah. s- see people go in and out of relationships more quickly than they do lifelong friends. Yeah, I mean, my friendships, like we're really there for each other. I, I really believe that and and have seen it through the years. Yeah. Let's talk about remote working. Obviously, upon starting, whatever, three years ago writing your book and then hitting 2020, like the loneliest year in history, the creation of the word lockdown, the creation of the word sort of tiered uh, social isolation, you know, social distancing. Social distancing, I mean, sorry, yes. I mean, so, yes, uh, no, uh, social isolation as well, but social distancing, that's such an kind of, it's almost like, I mean, that we were prescribing, telling people to socially distance. isolate. Yeah, that it's not It's not been a, a year of a glossary-filled book of words that are nice, is it? It wasn't like no. social cuddling or like... <laughs> house fun or so it was all like sort of fairly nasty words thinking about that i know that you talked about um the work industry how people feel in the workplace mm. what's your thoughts on the, the new normal of remote working so i don't believe it is the new normal firstly um because i think there was this initial euphoria uh when remote working was introduced but by and large this is really wearing thin. And I think most people by now um, are expressing quite clearly to their employers that they actually want to go back to the office, um, especially young people um, who, you know, maybe have got a really not that ideal work environment to be working from um, and are missing the chats at the um, water cooler and, and when you're making your cups of coffee in the shared kitchen so um so the idea that people actually really want to keep on working remotely i don't think it's the case of course some companies you know have been looking at how things have been unfolding over recent months and they're looking at this with glee thinking that this is a justification for them now massively reducing their physical footprint why provide offices it everyone can just work from home. But I would caution that because what I discovered in my research was that lonely workers not only feel bad themselves, but lonely workers are bad for business itself with lonely workers less productive, less motivated, less efficient than workers who are not and also more likely to jump ship um, in a study of thousands of workers across a number of countries um, they found that workers who were lonely were 60% more likely to quit. Shit. I, I was really interested around the insights of open office spaces versus cubicle office spaces and the fact that open office spaces actually cause people to feel more lonely. And you were saying, I think it was on Chris Evans or something, that you sometimes go into the office, you got your the noise-canceling headphones in because you're like, it's going to be loud in here and annoying and all the rest of it. And I can totally see how the openness of an open plan office actually causes people to open up less because they know that everybody in the room essentially can hear what they're going to say. Um, yeah, it's yes. a, it's a, so perhaps the new abnormal we could call remote working. 
And I, I definitely get it as well that from the pure rationalist utilitarian perspective, well, look, you've saved 10 hours a week on your commute to work. You know, you've half an hour there and back each day. And plus, look, you get to work with pajama bottoms on. You only have to wear a shirt on your top half now because you do Zoom calls or no pants at all, as some of my friends have sent me selfies of just them in their boxes with a shirt and tie on top doing a Zoom doing a Zoom meeting. She's I have never... no idea what I've got no idea what you've got. Nothing yeah, wait, got. look, well that's that's precisely why you can only see up to my waist. Um <laughs> Yeah, that that is never gonna get boring. But not only does that not speak to necessarily the full gamut of requirements that we have as a human, but we don't even know what we want. A lot of the time we think, well, look, I've saved this time. I'm spending more time. I get to go to the gym more. I get to do this, that, and the other. But the um, the thread of knowing what the inputs are in our life and how they make us feel, you know, we'd never need a therapist or a doctor if we were fully cognizant about those things, right? But we're not. Yeah. We don't we, we we don't know just how much we need to awkwardly say hello to the cleaner on our way in and our way out or like the receptionist that we're not too sure does she like me does she but not like me I think that's one of the things interestingly that the pandemic and the past however many months it now is um has made us however recognize more than we were aware of before those little micro exchanges and how much they actually matter, whether it is that chat in the cafe to the server or whether it is the conversation you might have in your local bookstore or whether it is um, the um, hello, um, those conversations you might have at a club in the evening with those people who you don't ever see outside of the club, but in some shape or form they are in some way who you'd consider to be your friends, I think, or even um, those colleagues in the office who maybe you never really thought of as friends, but now as months have gone by, you're thinking, actually, they kind of were friends, yeah, at least right. in some way. Actually, you I miss, think miss the- Smelly Bill and and, and, <laughs> and Dopey Joanne or whatever, you know, the weird nicknames that you've got for all of the people. Oh, that I don't know where you've been working. No, um, but, <laughs> but, um, but yes, so I think one of the things actually that we are more attuned to is how important those micro exchanges actually are. And when it comes to remote work, there was a big experiment done in China a couple of years ago where a big company, half of their employees were sent to work from home for six months. And at the end of six months, they were given the option. You can either return to the office or um, stay at home. And the vast majority rushed back, even though they had really long commutes. The craving for face-to-face interaction was actually stronger. That's really interesting. I'm reading The Happiness Hypothesis by John. I'm good, just Jonathan Haidt, like, down the rabbit hole at the moment. And um, <laughs> he says that the length of commute to work is one of the um, – easiest ha- reducing your commute to work is one of the easiest hacks to increase happiness across your life but because people tend specifically in america tend to prefer to have a big square footage house because it's impressive and it gives them status and it makes them feel important and so on and so forth uh, they'll tend to live further outside of a city so they can afford a bigger house which causes bigger commute but the converse of that is that obviously the commute to work enables you to see the people who are at work mm-hmm. so perhaps exactly. that's a 
perhaps that's a price and it comes back to what we were saying before right like these gradations what is the price yes. that we have to pay to get ourselves to this particular situation something else i've been thinking a lot about this year obviously my industry club promo i employ up to about a thousand students every year who are 18 to 21 freshers arriving at university you know some fresh-faced wet behind the ears young guys and girls who've arrived from leeds or manchester or birmingham or something and they come to newcastle full of gumption and ready to do geordie shaw and <laughs> they have been through like this year as a student must have been total hell you've been locked down in your halls of residence burley halls in manchester you'll have seen was 1700 students socially isolated not even able to go down to the front door to collect deliveroo or amazon uh, prime parcels for stuff that they needed all manner of crazy crazy situations and i wonder we, we've sort of talked about what the um more small gathering interpersonal one-to-one one-to-two situation but that collective effervescence that you spoke about the way that people feel sports fans feel when they get to chant their team's name when they're watching a, a game go on the way that it feels when your favorite song comes like when WAP comes on in a club or whatever it is and you, you're able to dance with your friends and you have you go up and you meet people um first off I wonder what sort of an effect that's going to have and secondly I wonder how long it's going to be it's a broader question how long it's going to be before we look at the world we have now, social distancing, masks outside, um, limited social contact, no clubs, no bars, no mingling between groups. When we see, because even now I see on TV the old world, the world from pre-2020, and think that looks alien, that looks bizarre, that obviously wasn't filmed this year, that's not the world that I inhabit right now. Um, so yeah, a whole host of potential sort of negative downstream effects from what's going on. So I'm actually more optimistic on this front. One of us um, needs I think to be. If we look, I think if we look back historically, there's reason for optimism. If you think just a few years after the 1918 Spanish flu, bars, nightclubs, cafes were heaving. The Roaring Twenties, Is that so? after all. Yeah, the Roaring Twenties came after, right off the back of the... 1918 Spanish flu, a situation very similar to this. If you think about how in Taipei, as soon as people were allowed to, 5,000 people were congregating each night to watch Phantom of the Opera. Now, like in the last few months, if you think about, if you've, if you've been tracking what's going on in Sydney or Christchurch, um, say Australia or New Zealand, we're seeing music festivals packed with people, nightclubs packed with people dancing. In Israel, after yoga studios were able to open again, people were encircling the blocks. You know, I really firmly believe that our fundamental desire to be with others is going to prevail. And, you know, I'm in absolutely no doubt about it. So you're saying that I can be very bullish about my industry over the next few years as soon as we get back out the other side of that. Well, that's good. I, I, I would I would even, yes, and I would even go, I, I would say be really bullish because in the same way that after a period of um, fasting, we become more hungry after this enforced social recession, I think our desire to be with others is going to be stronger than ever. One structural limitation that we're going to come up against there is the F&B nightlife leisure industry is getting pounded and it is not cheap sure. to run. Um, sure. 
there's a big venue up here. You'll have been to a Tiger Tiger before at some point in the year, uh, in, in your life. And um, they were purchased by a company called Deltic, huge, big, uh, publicly traded company. They own a ton of different venues. They turned them into prisms and they bought Lava Ignite and they bought Luminar that used to have liquid and LQ. Uh-huh. Big, big group. And on Saturday, I had to drive into the Newcastle one to pull all of our inflatables out before the administrators go in this week. And I turn up outside and there's a queue of lorries, five lorries, 10 cars, all in this little side street that's usually that my secret parking spot. And they're anything that isn't stapled or drilled into the floor and some things that are are just being lifted out of this building before the administrators come in and put a big chain around the door in a couple of days' time. So you think like that is going to bring the guardrails in on what people can do. You know, how many yoga studios, how many gyms, bars, restaurants, little independence, plus the ones that you might have thought would have been able to weather the storm because they've got deep pockets. Someone like a big publicly traded national company, like there's no one that's safe from going pop at the moment. No, and it's absolutely tragic. I mean, my sister has a yoga studio and she's experiencing this kind of firsthand. So, I mean, it's absolutely tragic. And yet from the ashes of these businesses, new um, pro-community commercialized ventures will inevitably rise inevitably correct and As- and for those and for those who can hunker down and weather the storm i mean there is light out there at the end of this tunnel for sure i like that if you were to give someone a prescription for how they can avoid loneliness as best they can what would your best tips be so if you're feeling lonely yourself, um, is there something that you're into doing where you might be able to find other people to do it with? So I, for example, I'm into improv. I do, I'm part of a week. I do improv every week. Um, in the old world, I would go and meet up with my fellow improvisers, but in the on Zoom world, we've migrated to Zoom for now. But, um, but, but it's really great having something that you're interested in. So whether it's improvising or singing or, um, I don't know, playing chess, collecting stamps, whatever it is, is there something that you're into where you could find other people for now? It may have to be on Zoom, but hopefully afterwards in person. Um, is there something you can do to help others? Uh, helping others is a really good way of feeling less lonely yourself, feeling more connected to other people. Um, but you're also, of course, doing really good for someone else at the same time. You're also, as the helper, getting what's known as the helper's high, a physiological response, dopamine rush, um, which um, which feels good as well. So helping others feels good too. So um, just a couple of practical things. If you're lonely, you could try out. Yeah, the uh, I have a friend who did classics at Liverpool. Crazy smart girl, and um, she came out and she got a first, she walked a first, having done no preparation for the entire three years she did the degree, and started volunteering on below minimum wage at a dogs shelter, looking after mm. abandoned dogs. And I was like, "One, well, you've just dropped forty grand on your degree. What are you doing?" And she's like, no, like, I've never been this happy in my life. Just like assisting dogs. And, and I mean, anyone that's around that many dogs is going to be happy. But she <laughs> she she took that as more valuable than doing a, a monetizing a 40,000 pound first in classics from Liverpool. 
so you think, yeah, it, it, it makes a lot of sense. Surprisingly, being selfless is one of the most selfish th things that you can do sometimes. Self-interested, yes. <laughs> Self-interested it is. Uh, Self-caring. There we go. If people want to check out more about you and uh, find out more stuff, where should they go? Um, they can either go to my website, www.narina.com. They can follow me on all my social platforms, which I am currently still on, and buy the book. Um, it's got lots more about what we've been talking about today, The Lonely Century, available in all good independent bookshops, as well as, of course, online. Fantastic. That will be linked on Amazon in the show notes below. If you buy it through that, you will be supporting the show at no extra cost to yourself. And anybody now that's able to get just their first name, .com, as their URL, like that is such a rarity. You must be one of only a very few people that's able to do that. So I congratulate yeah. you on a, fan a fantastic URL. Marina, today's, <laughs> today's been really cool. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you very much for tuning in. Don't forget, you can receive a 20% discount and free shipping on everything from manscaped.com with the code modernwisdom. Manscaped.com, code modernwisdom for 20% off everything, including their amazing Lawnmower 3.0. And if you haven't done it already, just now navigate to YouTube for me. Modern Wisdom, little search bar at the top, channel comes up hit subscribe. That would make me very, very happy indeed. Look, let's start the new year off the way that we mean to go on by only consuming my content. How's that? <laughs> Peace.